If you'll take your Bibles now and turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke. Our scripture reading this morning came from chapter 1, verses 39 and following, which is the passage of scripture that immediately follows the one that is our text for this morning, the announcement to Mary. We're continuing our Advent study, celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 9. We saw a prophecy that there would be a Savior who would come, who would bring salvation light, gospel light, to those who are dwelling in darkness. That there would be a Savior who would come and save His people from their sins. Our text for this morning takes us to the next stage in that story, as it were. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, where we see the announcement that the arrival of that Savior is near. The angel comes and speaks to the Virgin Mary with some spectacular, troubling, glorious, uncomfortable news for her. If you'll follow along as I read Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. To begin with, by way of introduction, verses 26 and 27 give the context for the whole passage. When is this happening? What are the circumstances? Verse 26 tells us that all of this took place in the sixth month. And we might be led to think in the sixth month of what? Well, 
This is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which we read about after this passage and in the first part of chapter 1. This is talking about Elizabeth, who is the mother of John the Baptist. This was another miraculous conception, something that in human terms is not possible. Elizabeth was a relative of Mary's, some sort of cousin, though we don't know exactly what the relation was, and she would give, the, give birth to John the Baptist. And what happens in our passage for today happens while, Mary, while Elizabeth is six months pregnant with John. The next thing we see here then is that Gabriel was sent from God. Now, who is Gabriel? Who is Gabriel? Well, the text tells us that he was an angel. And he apparently was not just any angel, but was a prominent messenger from the Lord to mankind. So the word angel has the idea of a messenger. But this is one that factors prominently into the story of Scripture. This is not the first time that we see him. Earlier in, in the chapter, Gabriel spoke to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, telling him what was about to take place. And beyond that, back in the Old Testament, we find him in the book of Daniel, giving messages and interpretations from God to his servants. But it's interesting that he sends Gabriel at this time because God was capable of speaking through dreams and visions, which he did fairly often. But it appears to me, and it strikes me in this way, that what God is doing in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 is so important, so central to his plan of salvation, so big in that story, that he commissions his angel Gabriel personally to give that message to mankind. And so God sends Gabriel out of his presence, out of the high, magnificent courts of heaven to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. Now that's quite a contrast if you know anything about Nazareth. Nazareth can hardly be called a city in terms of modern standards. It was a small village, likely home to just a, a couple hundred people, I suppose, at the most. And it was off the beaten path from the major highways of the day. It was an, an insignificant town. And it wasn't just an insignificant town. It was a despised town. You might recall that when uh, Nathaniel was first introduced to Jesus later on in Jesus, in Jesus' life as he was beginning his ministry, and he was told that Jesus was from Nazareth, what was Nathaniel's response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was the mentality of the day for many toward this small village of Nazareth. And already we're beginning to see something crucial yet often unexpected about the character of God and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Maybe you'll remember back to last week, the introduction of Isaiah chapter 9, where God promises this very thing, that the, the ones who sat in darkness would see the great light, that the ones who were brought into contempt would be made glorious. 
And here we're already beginning to see the fulfillment of that as one, as, as this town that is despised and off the beaten path and insignificant and seemingly meaningless in the course of human history is the first to receive the news of the arrival of a Savior. This is the way God works, not just in the incarnation of Christ, but also in the redemption of His people. You see, it's not to the people who are the most deserving. It is not to the people who seem to have it all figured out. It is not to the people who appear to be the most worthy out of anybody else that the Lord brings His message of salvation to. It is to the sinners. It is to the lowly. It is to the humble. It is to the outcast and the broken and to the poor in spirit, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And God in His grace and in His mercy reaches down to those and He makes them His own dear, beloved children. And already in this passage, just by focusing on Nazareth, we're beginning to see that pattern put in place. But there is more. Because not only does God send His messenger Gabriel to an unlikely place, but He also sends him to an unlikely person. In verse 27, we read that God sent Gabriel to a virgin, that is, to a young woman who had never been married and had never had this physical marital relationship with a man. And the end of the verse tells us her name was Mary. And the use of this word virgin in the context of her culture indicates several things, very likely. One, that she was young probably in uh, her mid-teens somewhere. But it also tells us something about her character, or at least it hints about her character, because it also indicates purity. She was a good girl, humanly speaking. But she was an insignificant girl. She was a sinner just like the rest of us, and she was a teenager just like the other teenagers. Scripture doesn't tell us much about her. The, the emphasis of Scripture, or lack thereof, on, on Mary indicates that she was just a normal girl in a small village. But then the text tells us that she was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Also, we don't know much about Joseph either. He seemed to be a good man. He seemed to be a devoted husband from what we can tell. Um, but what does it mean that they were betrothed? Well, to understand that, I think it's, it's helpful maybe to think of engagement on steroids or engagement with a contract, right? Legally binding, they were engaged to each other. They were committed to each other. They were essentially married in every way legally, but they did not have the physical relationship. They were not living together. Right? So they were married legally. They were essentially uh, under contract, if you will. And so to break this betrothal would have been a legal issue. But they had not consummated their marriage relationship yet in the physical sense. Mary and Joseph are 
essentially legally married and awaiting that day of consummation. The next point verse 27 makes is about Joseph, that he was of the house of David, meaning that he was a descendant of the great king David. Right? So this is important because of the lineage of this child. None of the details that are mentioned in verses 26 and 27 are insignificant or random. This is all important to show us who this baby is going to be who was born to the Virgin Mary. These details set the stage for the rest of the passage and they prepare our minds for what is to follow. And so we're going to see the significance of those details as we move along through the passage. And along the way, we're going to pull out some important details, some important uh, truths throughout this text. All right, so moving on to verse 28, we see the first major section of our, pas of our passage, and that is the blessing. The blessing that came from the angel, or the greeting. Verse 28 says, And he came to her, that's Gabriel, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The word greetings, uh, that, that seems to us to have a more cheerful tone, right? Doesn't it? I mean, there are, there are any number of ways an angel might introduce a dialogue to mankind, right? Greetings is one of the good ones. Woe is one of the bad ones. He doesn't come and say, woe to you, Mary. He says, greetings. And he calls her the favored one and says, the Lord is with you. Here is a cheerful tone, and I think that's helpful because what Mary is about to hear is very troubling. We'll see that. And the angel immediately is taking that edge off the message and, and encouraging her with the news that he brings to her. And when he calls her a favored one, the idea there is, is of being blessed or of receiving grace. The same Greek word is used by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians to refer to all Christians as blessed, favored ones, the ones who have received the grace and favor of God. And so, contrary to what some have claimed over the centuries, this phrase that the angel uses to Mary does not exalt her or set her up as a giver of grace or a source of grace. It simply proclaims to her that God has blessed her and has set his unmerited favor upon her. And that leads us to an important truth that we need to know about God. And we need to make sure that we have clear. It is God and God alone who is the giver of grace. And scripture teaches time and time again that he gives grace to sinners. And so when the angel comes and says, Mary, you are favored of the Lord. That actually says more about her status as a sinner than it does as being one who would be a giver of grace. She's a recipient of God's grace. And then the phrase, the Lord is with you, reinforces that truth. It has the idea that God's favor is resting upon you. God has given you grace. And in this particular case, we're going to see he has given her a, a special measure of grace, an enabling, a strengthening for a particular purpose, as God often does. Now, to this young girl, simple girl, 
in the town of Nazareth, this insignificant teenager, this is a very strange experience, wouldn't you say? I don't know what she was doing at this particular moment. Some speculate she was in the house. Some say she was outside. I have no idea where she was at this particular moment. But an angel, possibly in the form of a human being, so I don't, I don't know that there was this great golden glow coming from behind the angel. Or I don't know. But this messenger walks up to, to Mary and speaks very strangely to her. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And she would be understandably confused and surprised and maybe a little fearful at what she has heard because she knows where she's from. She knows who she is. And so this news of some favor or grace that comes from God toward this unworthy sinner is confusing to her. But that's another important lesson for us to understand, right? This would be the normal reaction of any, any truly righteous and humble person. Awareness of sin, awareness of our unworthiness, and even fear in the presence of God. Don't give much credence to personal accounts of people who say they have had an experience in the presence of God or they have seen Jesus face to face or they've talked with angels or whatever it is and they talk about it as if they're sitting in their living room with a close friend. Scripture shows us that whoever encounters a glimpse of the glory of God falls on their face as a dead man in fear and reverence. And I suspect there's whether Mary is seeing this angelic glow around this messenger or not, I suspect that some of that is beginning to well up in her. There is something big going on here, and it's a little confusing. And so she's a little bit shaken, no doubt, by the appearance of Gabriel. So in verse 30, this angel gives further assurance to her and says, Do not be afraid, Mary. Just like to the shepherds in the field, right? They fall down. They're sore afraid, the King James says. They're trembling. And the angel comes with good news. Do not be afraid. I am not a messenger of God's wrath to you like you would expect. I am a messenger of good news. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Again, this has the idea of receiving grace and, and blessing from God. It is not meant to teach us that God was impressed with Mary's goodness. It's not like God was sitting on his throne looking down on earth saying, Wow, who is really good? You know, that Mary, I'm impressed with her. No, she was just like the rest of us. So when this says you have found favor with God, the idea is God has set his favor on you, which is disconcerting, isn't it, if you think about it? Why would God single me out? It can't be anything good, can it? For me? For you? And the angel says, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. The focus here is on, on God's sovereign grace leading us to another crucial, important truth. 
God gives his blessing and favor to all whom he chooses, not based on worthiness or merit, but based on his sovereign grace alone for his sovereign purposes. Mary wasn't deserving of God's grace any more than you are and any more than I am, but she was a recipient of it. God is telling Mary that she has received his blessing and favor, and it is for a particular purpose. And that leads us to the next portion of our text then, where we move from the blessing to the promise. In verses 31 through 33, verse 31, the angel continues, and behold, we don't use that word very much today, do we? What would we say today to convey the, the idea of behold? I don't know. What would you use? Check it out. It's a little casual. Behold, King James says, lo, L-O. Listen up. Pay attention. This is big stuff. Look at this. Right? That's the idea there. This is vital. What, is, what I'm about to say, you need to hear. And he tells Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now make no mistake. Our world today views pregnancy as a curse. And that's a shame. That wasn't Mary's world. This was a blessing coming from God. Children are a blessing from God. Parents, don't ever forget that. And don't let the world tell you that being a parent is an interruption to your dreams and so you should avoid it at all costs. Don't do that. This is a blessing. And so what God is saying, what the angel is saying to Mary here about you conceiving in your, in your womb, yes, there is something troubling about that and we'll see that in a moment, but we're going to see ultimately it is a blessing. This is God's favor on her. This is His grace toward her. This is a gracious work that God was doing in her life and not just in her life, but through her to the rest of the world. And if she was surprised by the angel's greeting, oh, favored one, this is going to blow her away. For one thing, she's still a virgin. We've already noticed that. There is no human way she can be pregnant. And the implication of the passage and of Mary's assumption in verse 34 is that the angel is talking about a virgin conception. He's not saying, oh, hey, yeah, you're going to marry Joseph, and the first time you get pregnant, that's going to be him. No, this is going to be before all of that. That's the implication. And the angel is talking about something miraculous. And so this, is, this has got to be some child, right? This isn't just normal talk about a young woman getting ready to be married. This is something very different. Some special child, given that his birth is being announced by an angel from heaven and that he is going to be born to a virgin. Human logic doesn't explain that. But it doesn't have to, as we'll see as the passage goes along. But this is a special promise of the miraculous birth of a unique child. And the angel tells her about him, you shall call his name Jesus. Now, the name Jesus was not particularly unusual at that time. He was not the only Jesus even listed in the pages of Scripture. 
It was the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. But the meaning of the name is what the passage is truly interested in. The name means Jehovah saves. Yahweh saves. And in a culture where Mary lived at that time, the meaning of a person's name was significant. In fact, in Scripture, one's name often indicates something about the person's life and character, especially when that name is assigned by God. And so in this case, the angel is not just giving a random name for a child. They're not flipping through a name book and trying to figure out, oh, all right, last name, Christ, what name sounds good with that? No, that's not how this works at all. Now, the angel is communicating something to Mary about who this person is and what he is here to do. You shall call his name Jesus. And here again is an important point for us to know based on what that name tells us about him. This son to be born to Mary will be a savior from God who will save his people from their sins. And at this point, maybe Mary is recalling some Old Testament prophecies that she would have been taught through her childhood that would have been well known to the people of Israel such as Isaiah 7 that says the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and that this would be a savior as we see in Isaiah chapter 9 and other passages in the Old Testament. But the angel goes on in verse 32, not only will his name be Jesus to signify that he is the savior of his people, but also he will be great. That's what the angel says. He will be great. And that word great is one of those words that is overused today and often misunderstood. You're going to have this baby Mary. He's going to be great. Now, that's not what the angel is getting at. In fact, it does seem to be a bit of an understatement here when you look at who Jesus really is. But you want to know what the word is, the Greek word? Mega. Mega. Now, just think about what comes to your mind when you hear the word mega. This isn't great, like, oh, he's going to be really cool. You're going to like him. He's going to be easy. He's going to sleep through the night. And he won't cry, right? He's like, that's, that's not what this is going to be about. The word means extraordinary, amazing, magnificent, perhaps even beyond imagination or out of this world, literally. So to just say great feels a little anticlimactic, like a little understatement here. But the truth is, there are no words that can adequately describe what this angel is talking about, about this child. Human language cannot do justice to the extraordinary, amazing, magnificent, powerful, glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so much more than just a baby in a womb or a baby in a manger when you think about who he is and what he came to do. And when the angel says that he will be great, he is calling Jesus the all-powerful creator, the sovereign king, the mighty sustainer, the one to whom all creation looks. 
He is all glorious and worthy of all honor and worship. That is what we see wrapped up in this name, Jesus, who is so great. And where does his greatness come from? Politicians think that it's interesting and, and helpful and, and, and that it means something and that it's, an, that it's a, a, a picture of their greatness to talk about their humble beginnings, right? We hear it all the time, election cycles. And you know what we do right now in, in our current world, and we have for a long time now, whenever we hear stories about humble beginnings, we're always like, yeah, right. That's, that's what you know, we hear these stories. Well, I did this, and I was born on this farm, and we did this, and it was hard work, and we, we're like, yeah, okay, whatever. But they think that makes them look great. What makes Jesus great? Where does this greatness come from? It's not about the stable. It's not about the humble beginnings. Verse 32 tells us, He will be called the Son of the Most High. Most High is a title for God that is used to refer to His position as the supreme ruler over heaven and earth. It is used several times throughout the Old Testament. And to call Jesus the Son of the Most High is not to say He is the Most High's natural-born Son and, and He is somehow lesser or a created being. No, it is to say that He is in the exact likeness and image of the Most High God Himself. It doesn't diminish His importance. It doesn't diminish His prominence. It actually highlights it. It emphasizes it. He is God himself. And so, like we find in John chapter 1, this indicates he is equal to God in his essence and nature. He is the God who has been from the beginning. And there is our next important truth, that this Jesus will be great because he is the God of heaven. He is the Son of God. He is God in human flesh. He is the mighty King who has become man to be the Savior of the world. The next thing the angel Gabriel tells Mary then about this miraculous son, still in verse 32, he says, The Lord will give, him, give to him the throne of his father David. That's where Joseph's lineage comes in, linking him back to King David. Verse 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob. That is referring ultimately to the culmination of the work of Jesus Christ. Through his adoptive father, Joseph, Jesus was a legal descendant of King David. And that is important because God had promised that the Messiah, the Savior, the one who would reverse the curse of sin and who would reconcile his people to himself, this one would sit on the throne of David as a ruler, as a descendant of his lineage. And so this here is a direct fulfillment of the prophecy we saw last week in Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. There is no detail of prophecy in the Old Testament about the Messiah that Christ does not fulfill. Every detail taken care of. So here, 
Jesus, Heavenly Father, promises to give this child the throne of his earthly forefather, David, to rule over his people, that is, the, the house of Jacob. And this is important because there are promises that God has made to the people that Jesus is still going to fulfill in the future. The fulfillment, the culmination of these promises is yet to come. But this isn't even merely about one nation in one earthly location, is it? Because the promise of salvation that God has delivered to mankind is for all the nations, for all the world, for all who will believe in this Son, Jesus Christ. And so this promise links what Gabriel is saying to Mary to the Old Testament prophecies given to Israel that extend even beyond the borders of Israel to all the nations. And the rule of Jesus is not merely a temporal rule. It is a universal kingdom. It is a cosmic rule. It is a rule that will fill the earth and it will, according to verse 33, last forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. What kind of expectations did you want to have of your children when you found out that you were going to have a child? What would you have liked to hear? He will be great. That'll be awesome. Yep. And he'll grow up to be a good guy, a successful woman, a whatever. They'll marry somebody really good. They'll, they'll have lots of grandchildren for you and... Uh, you know, you'll have a great, I don't know, what, whatever it is, this far exceeds that. Can you imagine Mary, this young teenage girl, hearing, you're going to conceive and bear a son, and he's going to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is going to be great. Not great like you think about great, but great as in God himself. And he is going to rule over all creation, heaven and earth, forever. That's who you are going to give birth to, Mary. Wow. But this tells us another important lesson about who this baby is. Jesus is the ultimate king who reigns over the ultimate kingdom. There is a sense in which this is true right now, in that he governs and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he reigns in the hearts of his people. But there is coming a day when there will be a clear and visible and earthly manifestation of his rule, when all his promises will be fulfilled, and heaven and earth will be recreated and restored to perfection, and he will reign forever and ever. We need that kind of a king, don't we? Praise God, he's here. And he is coming again. So it's clear from this wonderful announcement to Mary that this child is no ordinary child. This announcement was so important to God the Father that he sent the angel Gabriel out of the glorious halls of heaven down to the sleepy town of Nazareth to tell this teenage girl that she has been blessed by God and given great favor by him and that she would miraculously conceive and give birth to the eternal Son of God the ruler of the universe, the promised Messiah and Savior of the world. This is huge, isn't it? 
This is spectacular. This is the hope that is given through the centuries of Old Testament writings and is fulfilled at the birth of this baby and is carried on through the New Testament down through every generation. This is why we're in church this morning. This is why I don't understand modern emphasis, uh, this is these modern attempts to remove Christ from Christmas. And I'm not talking about putting an X instead of Christ. That Whatever. I'm talking about how easy it is and how, how boldly our culture has translated comfort and joy to Black Friday. I mean, that's like unwrapping a gift and throwing away what's inside and playing with the paper. Kids, if you do that, don't. You're missing out. So many lesser things that we could remove from Christmas if we have to remove something. And I'm not saying we should. But the substance is Jesus. He is the point. And so whatever else we see in this time of year, we need to understand the importance of what the angel is saying to Mary. Jesus is not some guy who just did some good stuff. Jesus is God. Come to earth in human flesh to live a perfect life, to suffer at the hands of people that He created, to bear the judgment of His own Father on your sin and on mine, to die and then to rise again from the dead, so that you and I might have peace with God. Take your sugar cookies and throw them away, if you must. Forget the white Christmas. This is what matters. I'm not saying you should really do those other things. Enjoy it. Enjoy Christmas. But this is the substance. What could be better news than this? What could be better holiday conversation than this? That God has made a way for us to be saved from our sins. And this baby in the manger is a picture of that. Friends, are, are you holding on to some other holiday tradition, a tradition above this? Above, are you missing the point? Are, are you missing uh, their the big idea in this Christmas season, in the midst of the hustle and bustle of Christmas parties and, and decorations and, and fixing the decorations and rearranging the decorations and then enjoying your, your Christmas music and Christmas movies and your eggnog and opening the presents. Have you forgotten? Have you lost sight of Jesus and all of this and what he was born to do and why this season is so significant? What Gabriel is telling Mary, this birth of God as a holy baby is the crux of all human history. With that, we come to the next section of our text, verses 34 through 38, where we see the confirmation of what God is saying through his angel. This is when God makes spectacular, unbelievable promises to his people on earth, he often 
gives some sort of sign, some sort of confirmation that, yes, I get it, you can't imagine what I'm telling you, but, I'm, but here's a sign that shows you it will happen as I have said. And that's what happens here. Mary is filled with wonder and amazement at what the angel is saying. And so she asks in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now that's not a question of doubt like it was for Zechariah earlier in the chapter with the birth of John. This is a question of wonder. And I love how she assumes that this will be accomplished while she's still a virgin. She doesn't at any point think, oh, she's talking about the first child I have with Joseph. No, it's not. She assumes the miraculous. She assumes the supernatural, and she is amazed by it, but she doesn't understand it, and so she asks. And Gabriel answers her question by giving her confirmation of the trustworthiness of what he is saying, the surety of what he has said. He tells her first how it's going to happen, and then he gives her a sign of something that has already taken place. And so in verse 35, he tells her how it will happen. He says this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's Old Testament language, isn't it? That's Old Testament language, and and I think Mary would have understood that. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is the acting agent in God's will. It was the Holy Spirit who was moving upon the waters at creation. When the Holy Spirit came upon a person in the Old Testament, it was to empower that person for a particular task. So here, in Mary's situation, the Holy Spirit once again will descend upon her and do an act of creation, this time in her womb. And He would empower her to do what He has set her apart to do. In other words... This miraculous conception, this virgin birth, will be the work of the Holy Spirit acting with the power of the Most High God. And the word overshadow has the idea of encompassing or surrounding or influencing. Again, in the Old Testament, it was a word that was used to describe the cloud that covered the tabernacle to signify God's presence. In the New Testament, it is the word that is used to describe the cloud that surrounded Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. In other words, this is an act of the sovereign, all-powerful God who is coming into your presence, who is surrounding you and influencing you, who is with you, and who is controlling all things in your life. That is what he is saying to Mary. And then in the second half of verse 35, we see the word therefore, which as most of you already understand, means in light of what has just been said, now hear this. Because this birth is the direct work of the Holy Spirit, and because Mary is a virgin, there are two more things we know about Jesus. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Every person who has ever lived has been a sinner, except for Jesus. He is holy. And I know that the the word holy is not a comparative term to human beings. We know that because God was holy before He ever created the world. But as it compares to human beings, as it is used in relationship to us, it is an indication that God is 
perfectly pure. He is perfect in all of His divine attributes. He is separated from sin. He is indeed sinless. And that's not because He was only partly human. That's not what we learn in Scripture. He is fully and truly human, just as He is fully and truly God. This is important to understand, not so much about how all of this happened, but the fact that it shows us He is the Holy One. This Jesus is the Holy One from God. He is holy and perfectly sinless. And friends, that has to be the case. Otherwise, He can't die for your sin. He can't live a perfect life on your behalf. If He is not the Holy One, if He is not perfectly sinless, then He is just an ordinary man whose life and death were at best a good example for you to follow. And that's it. If He is a sinner, He cannot be the Savior. But since He is sinless, since He is the perfect God, and He is the perfect man, then His perfect life was lived on your behalf, just as Adam's sin was essentially on our behalf. And His death on the cross was not for His own sin. He had none. But for ours, in our place. And as the Holy One, He is the Son of God. He is the same essence, the same nature as God Himself. He is God. Do not miss that. Do not minimize that. Do not just write it off as, oh yeah, I got that. He is God dwelling among us. So Gabriel confirms this message to Mary by telling her how it's going to happen. But then in verse 36, he gives her a sign, something that has already happened or taken place that will confirm the reliability of what he's saying. Mary, if you need help believing that, let me show you something. In verse 36, he says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Old age, sixth month. Both of those are significant, right? She's well along in her pregnancy, right? Feeling pretty comfortable that she's going to go to term. Right? This is not, oh no, let's hang on. Oh, we don't know. No, there's six months along here. In her old age, to one who was told, you will never have children, the one who had tried and tried and tried and tried and was never able to have children. This is what we read about in the first part of Luke chapter 1. Now, the exact relation between Mary and Elizabeth is unknown. She was a relative of some sort likely on Mary's mother's side of the family, since earlier genealogies place Mary in the line of Jesus, while Elizabeth was in the line of Levi and, and so on. But the point is that Elizabeth was old and had never been able to bear, to bear children. Mary knew her, so she would have understood as well that it was a miracle for Elizabeth to conceive. The lesser miracle is used to confirm the greater miracle. The lesser miracle, Elizabeth conceiving a son by Zechariah in her old age, confirms the surety of the greater miracle that is promised, the Virgin Mary conceiving and bearing the Son of God. 
Then Gabriel caps off the whole message with the universal truth in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. You believe that, don't you, Mary? You believe that if God is any kind of God at all, that nothing's impossible for him, right, Mary? Well, yeah. Then you can believe this. Even though you can't explain it, even though you can't understand it, you can believe it. This is not just lofty talk. This is backed by the power and the character of God himself. If God is who he says he is, then he can do what he says he can do, no matter how seemingly impossible. God is not bound by the laws of nature, nor the imagination of men. Nothing is too hard for him. That's the message Mary needs to hear at this moment because she's about to embark on a whole new issue. But she is reinforced right here at the beginning. Mary, this is of God. And where God has called, God has empowered. And God's power is sufficient because nothing is impossible for him. And that brings us to the last verse of our passage where we see Mary's humble response to the angelic announcement. Look at verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That word servant has the idea of being a bond slave. I belong to you. I am yours to do with what you will. Mary willingly and humbly submits to the Lord's will. It is an honor for her to be the mother of the Lord Jesus but it will also be intensely challenging. I'm not sure she understands yet what kind of scorn she is going to endure. Maybe at this point she's just trying to figure out how she's going, going to explain it to Joseph. But she's going to bear that scorn likely for the rest of her life. And there's a moment even as Jesus is an adult where the Pharisees take a shot at him as if he was an illegitimate child. That is the rumor that swirled his entire life. That's the scorn that Mary is going to have to bear. Being perceived as an immoral woman in her premarital pregnancy. But whatever it is that she must face, she submits to God's will. This is the attitude of a true believer, right? The servant of God humbly submits to his will no matter what. And so for us today, this passage is not so much an announcement of what is still to come, but a declaration of what has already happened. It is about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for us today, this passage is a call to look at Jesus for who he is and what he really came to do. This is a call for us to have him in the forefront of our minds and to respond appropriately. So what does this passage tell us? What have we learned about Christ in this passage? We have learned this. He is the giver of God's grace to sinful men. He is the savior of sinners. He is the all-powerful creator, the sovereign king, the mighty savior, the one to whom all creation looks. 
He is all-glorious and worthy of all honor and worship. He is God in human flesh, the mighty king become man to be the savior of the world. He is the ultimate king who reigns over the ultimate kingdom. He is the sovereign, all-powerful God of heaven and earth who controls all things and who works all things together for his divine purpose. He is holy, perfectly sinless. He is the same essence and nature as God himself. He is God. And the implications of that truth touch every aspect of our lives. I was listening last night to a man talk about an opportunity he had to witness to a friend of his who's an atheist. And the atheist came to him and he said, I finally come to the point where I, I think there's a God. So what was the next question? Great, when are you going to join the church? No. Okay. So if you believe this, that there's a God now, here's the question. What if you're accountable to him? Jesus is God. Now what? The only remaining question then is this. Where do you stand with him? Think about that. Where do you stand with him? You just assume that because you're a good person, you're right with God. No one is right with God unless they approach him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? We know he is the Savior and that he is the Lord. Is he yours? Is he the center of your world? Let's pray. Father, what a Savior you have sent.